Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. You're going to want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. And you'll have to forgive me. I didn't write down a page number, but luckily Missy is always on the ball. And you will uh, want to turn to page 952 in those blue pew Bibles below you. If you don't have a Bible, that is a gift from us to you. We would love for you to take that, read it, uh, and ask any questions about it if you have any. But we are just going to be doing just that, looking at the Bible and seeing what it says uh, in itself and studying it for us. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, I want to make you known of a certain date. On December 17th, 1903, two brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, would fly an air machine for more than 60 seconds. It's a significant event. And this event would not go on to not only revolutionize the way we travel, but as many of you all know in here, the way the art of war is practiced. And this was even the initial spark of figuring out, hey, we could get human beings out into space. I mean, think about how much December 17th, 1903 had an impact on those of us in here in this room. Many of us have been brought here or are here right now to Rapid City because of the presence of Ellsworth Air Force Base, not just to fly the various aircraft that the Wright brothers initially uh, took off for for over a minute, but to maintain those aircraft and, and to maintain the Air Force Base itself. December 17th, 1903 is a significant event in history for all of us, even if we don't see the immediate consequences of it all the time. Well, in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, the Apostle Paul reminds the first century church in Corinth about the resurrection of Jesus, the historical and monumental event of a Jewish carpenter being raised from the dead is paramount, or as Paul goes on to say, it is of first importance to their existence as a church. Not only that, but the resurrection of Jesus, it's the linchpin to everything else that he's written to them prior to this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. And including this Sunday and the next three weeks after today, we are going to be studying 1 Corinthians 15 with with the primary goal of not just simply helping us understand the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. It is important and it is central. But that because Jesus has been raised from the dead and is alive today, there should be real and immediate consequences because of our faith in that monumental event in history. I've actually entitled this series that we're going through over the next four weeks, Resurrection Matters. And and what we're going to do over these four weeks is is see just why Jesus' resurrection matters for us today from the various matters and issues that Paul deals with in this chapter. And what we're going to do, just to kind of give you a really quick flyby of what we're going to be doing over these next four weeks, in verses 1 through 11, we're going to see that resurrection matters because the gospel matters. And then in the next week, in verses 12 through 34, we're going to see that resurrection matters because the consequences of the resurrection matter. And that's centered around this this claim that's going on in this first century church in Corinth that there is no resurrection of the dead and that Christ has not been raised. There are people apparently within the church saying this. And, And Paul's argument for this whole chapter is actually refuting that claim that Jesus has in fact indeed been raised from the dead and that we also will be raised. And then he answers two questions that naturally those people would make that are making this claim. In verses 35 through 49, we're going to see that resurrection matters because the dead in Christ will be raised bodily. And Paul elaborates on how this will happen and what kind of body. It's a really fun chapter. I'm really looking forward to week three personally. And then in verses 50 through 58, we're going to see that resurrection matters because our labor is not in vain. And it's primarily concerned with 
what the resurrection will look like for those of us who are alive right now in Christ and how that should encourage us in our faith in the present. But before we actually get into chapter 15, and you'll have to forgive me, we just need to do a lot of contextual work since we're basically just jumping into the end of Paul's letter here. Uh, I think it's really important and helpful for us to have a grasp of what Paul has been talking about so far in this letter to this first century church in Corinth. And I've actually borrowed kind of this overview from the Bible Project. So Paul's addressing various issues within this church. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, they have a litany of issues. They are far from uh, being a perfect church. And, and what he's doing is he's giving them solutions in light of the gospel with all these different issues that he's dealing with. So in chapters 1 through 4, the issue of divisions have, have come up in this church about who taught them or who they were baptized by. And it's actually dividing the believers there in this church. And Paul wants to remind them, hey, it's actually, it doesn't matter who preached you. It doesn't matter who baptized you. Actually, what matters is that Christ saved all of you. And, and he saved you as a people centered on Jesus and not those teachers. And then in chapters 5 through 7, he deals with the issue of sexual immorality. And and not just in a specific case, like in chapter 5, but in many different instances, whether it's marriage or singleness. And and he tells them that because they're free in Christ, they shouldn't just do with their bodies whatever they want to do. Actually, Christ has redeemed them body and soul. And and Christ has actually died for their sexually sexually immoral sins. And because of that, they should use their bodies now to glorify Christ because they belong to him, body and soul. In chapters 8 through 10, uh, Paul addresses issues over divisions of food and specifically meat sacrifice to idols. And, and some believed in this church that because uh, they were free in Christ, they, they could rightly um, eat that meat sacrifice to idols. But there were also another group in the church that said, hey, we shouldn't eat meat sacrifice to idols and, and, and felt in their conscience they shouldn't and actually judge uh, the people that would eat that meat sacrifice to idols. And Paul addresses both and says that love for one another is needed and that they ought to look out for the interest of others more than themselves while also reminding them that they're both free in Christ. And so he never really lands on who's right or wrong there. And then in chapters 11 through 14, Paul addresses different issues that have arisen as the church in Corinth gathers. And specifically, he's tackling some really tough issues like tongues and prophecy and just teaching in general. And in the order of that said teaching. And then also the Lord's Supper. I mean, we're going to be kind of in this in 1 Corinthians 11 whenever we get to the Lord's Supper. But their Lord's Supper time was, it was chaotic, uh, to say the least. And in all of these cases, Paul urges the believers once again that they were to remember why they were gathering together. Which is to recall the love of Jesus that he has shown them. And then let that love rule the order of their meetings and the Lord's Supper as well. And then in chapter 15, this is what we get to. As I've stated, it's over the issue of the resurrection of the dead, over the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul, actually in really artistic fashion, he uses this chapter because it's of first importance to this church and to all believers to say that it is only because of the resurrection that they can even begin to resolve any of the issues that we have been talking about so far. So, I think what's going to be really helpful now is let's just get into 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11 and read together. And we'll walk through this passage. Read along with me in God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I believe to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed." I think the main idea of this passage is this. Resurrection matters, and I've already said this. Resurrection matters because the gospel matters. The gospel matters. And what we're going to be doing is looking at this passage in four specific points. We're going to be looking at, because the gospel matters, we're going to see that the gospel is essential in verses 1 and 2. And we're going to see that the gospel is scriptural in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 through 9, we're going to see that the gospel is visible And then finally, we're going to see that the gospel is shareable, which is in verses 10 through 11. And if you're a note taker, don't worry. I'm going to come back to each of those points. But again, that main idea is this. Resurrection matters because the gospel matters. The gospel matters. And we're going to see in our first point here, the gospel matters because the gospel is essential, which is in verses 1 and 2. So from the outset, Paul is desiring for hearers and readers of his letter to be reminded of the gospel. And we're going to elaborate on this message. What exactly is the gospel? We're going to talk about that, I promise. But he's really desiring that they understand and be reminded of this message that he preached to them in person. For Paul, if this, if this church is going to get anything in this letter, in all 16 chapters of it, as we've broken it down in our translations... If they're going to get anything, they need to get this message of the gospel of Jesus that he brought to them. And specifically, that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. They must believe this. They have to hold on to this reality. He's also reminded them that not only did he bring this message to them, he preached it to them, but members of those church in Corinth, they believed and placed their whole trust in the gospel that he preached to them. He, he is understanding that whenever he preached to them, they actually accepted it as the reality of their lives. And therefore, they need to orient and change their lives in shape of believing in the gospel. He also reminds them that they now stand as a church in this belief. And they will be saved by holding fast to that message that he brought to them. This, of course, is, as Paul says, if they have not believed in vain. And I think what he's saying here is, if they have not believed without reason or purpose. You see, for Paul, this message of the gospel, it's not some mere mental assent or or just an agreement that these people can make. Like, here's some statements about who Jesus is and what he's done. Do you agree? And boom, salvation. That's not what he's getting at here. For Paul, their belief in the gospel, it must be everything. It has to be centered on who they are as a people and who they are as a church. The gospel is essential to who they are and what they do. Everything else that he's written in chapters 1 through 14, it doesn't matter if they don't really believe the reality that he's getting ready to expound upon here in a moment. And as we'll see next week, there was much hardship that this church could have avoided if if they 
actually did not believe in the gospel. I mean, they, they were going through some tough issues, and Paul himself went through some very tough things for the sake of the gospel. But as we see here from these first two verses, at least according to Paul, it is only the gospel of Jesus that they can hold fast to and stand in and be saved by. I want you to see this. In a pluralistic society, in a pluralistic culture like Corinth, where they worship many Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, Paul is saying the only way that you can be saved is by trusting in this message of the gospel. It's essential. And and his reminder here is not so much a a reminder like you might tell your kids, your kids, you might hear this from your parents. Hey, just as a reminder, don't forget to do your homework or you're going to fail that class. It's not that kind of reminder, like one that you're rushing out of the door, like Laura might tell me, hey, don't forget we're having these people over. It's not like that at all. On the contrary, their belief in the gospel is of real consequence. It's not just a, a fleeting thought. It is life or death for this church. And this is why he wants to remind them that the gospel is essential. Just as a quick application, I I wonder in what ways, brothers and sisters who are Christians here, do you show that the gospel is essential in your life? Is the gospel and its proclamation, is it a priority for you and for your family? Do you order your lives in such a way that it would be evident that you need to hear and be retold the gospel over and over again? I'm afraid that for many of us, including myself, that if we just ran through our week and and took a snapshot of the last couple of weeks, Paul might end up writing us a letter as well about what needs to be essential. For Paul, if our belief in the realities of what I'm getting ready to explain here in the next point, if they are really our beliefs, then we also must remember that we are standing in and being saved by something that is not in vain. For many of you here, I I don't know what your week was like, and I don't know what you're struggling with. But your belief in the gospel is not worth nothing. It's worth everything. And Paul wants you to understand that your belief in that, even though you may be going through hardship and suffering, it is worth it. Our belief in the gospel is essential because it is priceless to who we are. And it's priceless because of what we will become in eternity. But this necessity of believing, it's really moot if we don't actually know what the message is. Which brings us to our next point. The gospel is scriptural. It's scriptural. So look look down with me in verses 3 and 4. As I read them once again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, what is this message that is of first importance? What is this gospel, this euangelion, this, this good news that the church in Corinth must believe in? It, it doesn't get any clearer than these verses, does it, friends? But I think especially for those of us who probably need to hear the gospel again, or perhaps maybe you're here and you need to hear the gospel for the first time, let's just walk very slowly through these two verses through six observations. And I want us to make sure we are clear on what Paul is urging us to believe in. And so hopefully by the end of these six observations, you'll see why the gospel is scriptural along with essential. So the first thing, number one, that should pop off the page is is what Paul is writing to them here. It's of first importance. While there are certainly implications to believing in the gospel and shaping your life around those truths, 
What Paul seems to be reiterating here is that they must get this first. They must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, repentance or any sort of life change without this belief, it's, it's kind of pointless. If they were to change their lives without believing in this, it doesn't matter. That's not real belief in the gospel. And in many ways, the opposite can be true as well. We need to believe and understand the resurrection probably more than we need to understand the hypostatic union of the Trinity. We need to understand of what is first importance. If a new believer uh, says, hey, I believe in these realities of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then you just immediately follow up with them, hey, what do you think of uh, the relationship of the Father and the Son eternally? Like, that's not going to matter at that very moment. That new believer needs to be instructed and discipled into that relationship of the Trinity. But they need to understand and hold fast to the message of what is first importance, the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, the other thing I want you to see within these uh, two verses is that what Paul himself is preaching, he's actually a recipient of as well. What this means is that Paul really believes in what he's writing to them. And and this will make much more sense later on in 1 Corinthians 15, but especially given all that he's given through, Paul really does place his whole life, his whole claim on who he is and what he does for his mission of his life on this reality of believing in the gospel. It's not just that he says it because it's a good thing that's going to make him some money. He, he preaches this because he really believes it in his heart and soul as well. Third, as we really kind of get into the meat of what these two verses are getting at, we see that Christ died for our sins. This is the bad and, and yet good news of the gospel. So let's, let's start out with the bad news, okay? The bad news of the gospel is that every single one of us in here. Every single one of us and all of our kids that are in the nursery and the children's church room, every single one of us has sinned and rebelled against God. Every single one of us. We all have, even in the smallest of ways, declared to God, even though we owe him all praise and glory, we have declared to him that we deserve our own praise and our own glory. And we've actually ordered our lives around believing that. As we were talking about in our Sunday school class this morning, we have had darkened hearts because of our sin. And because of this rebellion of sin and shaking our fists at God, saying that we know better what to do with our lives than the one who created us, because of this, we deserve his holy and just wrath. And because of God's holy and infinite goodness and his righteousness, he must punish sin and rebellion. It would be outside of his character to not do that. And God has allowed his just wrath now to fall on us by letting the curse of sin, which is death and eternal separation from him, be our just punishment for sin. We all deserve this. And we all have incurred this righteous judgment from God. So that's all the bad news. So here's some really, really good news of the gospel. Christ, the prophesied and chosen servant of God, the Messiah, as he's called in the Old Testament. He died for our sins. All that rebellion, all that sin against God, Christ died and took on the just punishment for our sins. What we find in the gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish carpenter who is actually God made flesh, he's the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He took the just punishment for our sin though he never once sinned or rebelled against God. As we also discussed in my Sunday school class this morning, Jesus was the only atoning sacrifice for our sin that could 
not just turn away God's wrath against us, but could also satisfy God's wrath. When Christ took the punishment of sin on that Roman cross, He drank every drop of God's wrath. There's none left for any of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Fourth, what we see in these two verses is that Christ was buried. Christ was buried. And there's not much to elaborate on here, but I, I believe Paul is actually including this because even whenever this letter is written, and it's you know within this range of maybe 20 years or so after Christ has actually been resurrected, we see that there's this idea that Jesus' body was actually not raised back to life or resurrected, but um, that his disciples like rolled away this huge stone and, and it took away his body and stole it just so that it would look like that he resurrected. And, and Paul wants to go ahead and dismiss that notion and, and reaffirm that Jesus actually did die and he was buried because that's actually what you do with dead people, right? You, you bury them. And Paul wants to make that very clear for us and for them as well. But Jesus did not stay that way, did he? Fifth, and the most amazing Peace and news of the gospel. Jesus was raised on the third day. This reality is the linchpin to everything else Paul will say in the rest of this chapter. Jesus did not, he could not stay dead. Because of his righteousness, because of who he is, he could not stay dead. He was raised to life on the third day after his death, conquering the curse of sin and death and showing that he has dominion over them. And that he would have dominion over anybody that would place their faith in him. And that he would have dominion over the sin and death for those that also would place their faith in him as well. There are many people who will die for others for their cause. We see this throughout history, do we not? There are many people that will die for righteous reasons. But only one in history has been raised for the people that he died for. Only one, and it's Jesus Christ. And it's not as if Jesus just stayed alive a little while to prove that he could resurrect. It's not like he just stayed alive for another, you know, 30 days and was like, ha, gotcha, now I'm going to actually go die peacefully. That's not what it was. No, Jesus' resurrection was total. It was complete. Meaning that he is still alive today. This is a central component of the gospel that we need to reiterate. Jesus didn't just raise from the grave and die some other time. He raised and he is still alive today. And he's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for those who have faith in him. And I would be remiss not to include the understanding of the gospel that all these realities that I just painted for us, they demand a response. Jesus dying for our sins, being buried, and being resurrected on the third day, and being alive today, it demands, on the res- it demands a response for all of us in here this morning. You can either reject Jesus and his resurrection, and continue to live under the righteous judgment of God, eternal death and separation from Him? Or, you can truly believe in Jesus and all that He has done, and especially believe in His resurrection, and turn from that sin that separated you from God that Jesus died for, and come to faith in Him. Jesus' gospel demands a response. And if you've not made that response today, I encourage you that you should. God has place you here this morning so that not only would you read what Jesus has done for you, but that you would hear it explained to you and how it applies to you. And you must make a response today. If you have any questions about what that might look like, come see Pastor James, come see me, come see Joel, and we would love to talk to you about that. 
Sixth and finally, from these two verses, what we see is we find that Christ's death and resurrection on the third day all occurred according to the scriptures. For Paul, that means these two specific events of Jesus' death and resurrection as the Messiah, they were foretold, they were prophesied in Paul's understanding of the scriptures, which was the Old Testament for us. And and to hear and see about how Jesus specifically is the fulfillment of one such prophecy, I would invite you back 5 p.m. tonight, come hear Tanner Thomas preach on uh, Psalm 53, or excuse me, Isaiah 53, um, as he explains how that passage itself lent itself toward uh, Christ being our atoning sacrifice. But, but to get back to the point, for Paul, as he understands that Jesus is the chosen one whom the scriptures in the Old Testament were pointing to, to fulfill all righteousness for mankind and to be the atoning sacrifice that would reconcile sinful humanity back to a holy God, as he makes this claim, this is not some baseless claim that he's saying. He's taking all the data of what he knows in Scripture, in all the Old Testament books, he's looking at all that Scripture and saying, okay, I'm going to look at Jesus' life and I'm going to look at all these Scriptures, and whenever I compare those two things, all I can come to in my conclusion is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the promised one whose death and resurrection were foretold in the Scriptures. And I don't know if you knew this, but Paul, he declared this about himself. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That meant he knew the law, and not just the law, but the traditions of the law, inside and out. I mean, if, if any of you think it would be hard to memorize a whole book of the Bible, Paul had all of the first five books of the Bible memorized as a Pharisee. He was incredibly intelligent. He knew everything about the Bible. And along with God knocking him off his horse and helping him to see that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, Paul went to the Scriptures, wrestled with him, and saw that, yes, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He valued the scriptures because they pointed him to Jesus. For Paul, and I pray it would be for us as well, our faith in Jesus is to be connected and strengthened by our belief in the scriptures. Old and New Testament, thank goodness for us, right? Paul's understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for those who trust in him. Paul's understanding of that all came from him wrestling with scripture and him submitting his beliefs to the Bible. Very simply, Paul's doctrine, his understanding of the scriptures, it fueled his faith. And there's a reason why we here at South Canyon want to do the same thing for you. I I don't know if you notice this, but as a church, we base much of our ministry upon the Bible. Those kids that are in children's church right now, they aren't in there just to play with toys and get free babysitting. Thank goodness they're also getting taught the excellencies of who Jesus is and what Scripture says about him. Our life classes, our life groups, everything that we do as a church is based around wanting you to know what the Word of God is and letting that fuel your faith. We order and structure much of what we do as a church, even what we do here in our morning services like this, to expose you to God's Word so that, like Paul, we may both internally and outwardly respond in faith and repentance and what Jesus has done for us in these scriptures. I hope and pray you see that, and hope and pray you place priority on the times where we do proclaim the word and come to it. As we've seen, not only is the gospel essential to our understanding to the resurrection, but it's also scriptural. But just in case you thought Paul was only going to give you two reasons for why the gospel matters, think again, right? He goes on to write about the ripple effect of Jesus' resurrection 
and scriptural death and scriptural resurrection and its effect on people in verses 5 through 9. And our next point, the gospel is visible. The gospel matters because the gospel is visible. Read along with me in verses 5 through 9. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one to untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So, what do I mean, as we read these verses, what do I mean about the gospel is visible? Obviously, we are close to 2,000 years removed from this specific event. And so, it's not as if we can, like, say, hey, we saw this. Um, And it's not as if we can, like, hop in our time machines, unless you have one of those, then let me know. Um, But it's not as if we can do that and and go witness um, these events. So, I think Paul here, though, is talking about a different kind of visibility. Visibility that actually enhances our current trust in what the scriptures proclaim. And I think we actually see this gospel visibility in two different ways. And first, what we see is we see that the gospel was visible by actual eyewitnesses. I mean, these verses are littered with individuals who, after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he appeared to them visibly. He didn't just, like, show up. He appeared to them in bodily flesh before them. You can read about such instances in the four gospel accounts of the New Testament and in Acts. And and, and this, again, I just want to reiterate, this isn't like some appearance like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He, He didn't show up as, like, Bob Marley in a ghost form or something like that. No, he, he appeared to them with an actual body that could be seen and can be touched. I mean, that's one of the most touching, uh, no pun intended, it's one of the most touching things about the Gospel of John, right? Thomas says, unless I touch his body and, and feel the holes in his hands, I, I'm not going to believe in this. So what does Jesus do? He, he appears before the disciples and Thomas touches him and, and, and comes to the understanding that this is the Son of God. Jesus appeared to these brothers and sisters in such a way that if he was hungry or thirsty, he ate and drank. He appeared to them visibly. A couple of interesting points on on these verses. First, I hope you notice Paul's careful use of the word apostle in verses 7 and 9. I think Paul wants his readers to know that an actual apostle, at least according to his standards while he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's understanding of an apostle is this. It's only people who are visibly seeing Jesus are the 12 disciples from Acts 1, including Cephas, a.k.a. Peter, if you didn't know that. Cephas is his Hebrew name. James, the the leader of the church in Jerusalem and also the half-brother of Jesus and Paul. And, and, And what these 12 men, including Paul and James, what they all have in common is this. They had a visible revelation of Jesus and they were given special authority and commissioning from Christ himself. He, he appeared to them for a purpose. These 500 brothers that he appeared to at one time, they were not given the same special commissioning that these 14 men were given in the same way. But we also read that Jesus did not appear just to the apostles, right? He appeared to 500 brothers at one time. And, and what makes this point interesting is that Paul, again, is likely writing this about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what that means for this church in Corinth is that for many of the people that he's writing to, they could go ask these 500 brothers who saw Jesus visibly. 
He's saying that they're still alive. While verse 6 actually tells us that some have fallen asleep, meaning they actually have died in Christ, they can be trusted with their eyewitness testimony just as much as Paul claims. Paul's basically saying this. If you have any doubts of Jesus' bodily resurrection, you can go ask these people to see if I'm making any false claim. Just go ask one of those 500 brothers and see if I'm saying is a true thing. In any case, there are over 500 people that can verify Paul's claim that Jesus did, in fact, resurrect from the dead according to the Scriptures because they saw Jesus visibly with their own eyes. And not to mention, friends, South Canyon Baptist Church would not be here today if it were not for those 514 individuals taking that visible revelation of Jesus Christ and proclaiming it to others and saying that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Every single church throughout history is based upon this 500, these over 500 people that claim that they saw Jesus visibly. You and I are here this morning because of these 500 people. I think the second way we see this gospel visibility is this. We see it being visible by the change in Paul's life. What we find in verses 8 and 9, it's really, in my opinion, nothing short of a miracle. Paul is really saying, you can know that the gospel is visible by the change in my life. Perhaps in your, in your life group discussions this week, take some time to read about Paul uh, at the end of Acts 7 and, and into Acts 9. I would encourage you to do that, um, especially as we get into the rest of this series. To say that Paul hated Jesus and the men that were preaching Jesus' resurrection, to say that he hated them, that was an understatement. It's an understatement. He hated them. He goes on to say, obviously, in our passage, that he persecuted the church of God. And yet, if you were to read everything after Acts 9, you would see that God would go on to use this man who hated and persecuted the church of God to make Jesus' name known in places that had never been heard before. God changed Paul's life by this visible revelation that he had. He appeared to Paul and turned him from a persecutor of Christianity to a proponent for it. Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to Paul, knocked him off of his horse, and changed Paul from an antagonist to an apostle. I mean, it is the craziest life change that you can read about in the New Testament. My friend, I wonder if you are here with us today, and if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, first of all, I am so, so glad you're here. There really isn't a clear passage of Scripture that you're going to hear this morning than what we're reading right now about what the gospel is and what our response should be to it. But I do wonder if your resistance in the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ, I wonder if your resistance to it is because you also know and understand that if you were to believe in this gospel, it would have to make a visible difference in your life. Perhaps believing in Jesus and in this resurrection that he had and that you could have would cause you to give up that addiction that you've battled with for so long. Maybe it would mean having to forsake family and friends for the sake of following Jesus and Jesus alone as the king of your life. Maybe, just like Paul, it would change everything about you. What you thought your identity was would have to die for the sake of following Jesus. 
Maybe it would change you so much that you would no longer be a hater of the church, but a lover of the church and her king. I pray, whatever the case may be, I pray that you would look at the kind of person that Paul was for the sake of knowing what Jesus turned Paul into. If Paul can turn somebody that had cloaks laid at his feet as a man was being killed for preaching Jesus to one who would eventually die for the same name that he killed other people for, friend, he can change you too. He can make that visible change in your life. And I pray that you would respond to that today. I I bet if you talk to your friend that brought you or another church member here, they would be glad to recount the ways that God has actually changed their life and made the gospel visible to them. Friend, believing in Jesus is costly, but as we are reminded, Paul's and so many other lives have changed and know that they are worth it. People have died for this reality that I'm proclaiming today, and it's worth it, and it could be for you as well. Paul has argued that the gospel is essential, scriptural, and even visible in matters of the resurrection. But now as we come to our last point, and I promise this is the last point, Paul wants the church in Corinth to know that the gospel matters in the resurrection because the gospel is shareable. Read with me in verses 10 through 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. By the grace of God, as we've seen, Paul's life was changed. But so was his mission and his purpose in life. God's grace toward Paul to reveal to him that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of God would be used by God to, make, to take this message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to other people so that they could believe. This is why God's grace was not in vain or without reason or without purpose in Paul's life, as he states. Because instead of merely just being convinced that Jesus was the Messiah who was resurrected from the dead, Paul worked hard by the grace of God. He worked hard, harder than even the apostles, he says, to make this truth known. And his labor was not in vain. People believed as Paul and and actually others preached this good news that they all believed Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead and is alive today. This church in Corinth believed in the message of grace to all sinners because this amazing grace came to Paul. And because this amazing grace came to Paul, it was never in vain. Christian, I, I, I have to imagine that some of us might be tempted to think that we aren't doing enough for Jesus Christ. I think that maybe even some of us worry if we are, if you will, working hard enough for the gospel. Look at what Paul is saying here. If God's grace has been given to you, it's never in vain. It's never in vain. It's never in vain because he is going to work in you and he's going to work it out of you as well. So wherever you're at, I promise you would understand that God's grace to you is never without reason or purpose. And along with that, Christian, I want you to recall when you believed in the gospel. How did it come to you? Were you watching Billy Graham on the television? Was it because of the faithfulness of a Sunday school teacher or a brother or sister who spent intentional time with you urging you to believe? Was it because you perhaps grew up going to Christian gatherings just like this one? With, with normal singing and normal praying and, and normal sermons. And over time, you 
came to understand that you must believe in the gospel of Jesus. Think about that time. Whatever the story is of God's grace in your life, it is only because of the grace of God that we have come to hear and believe in Jesus. All those different people, all those different situations that God put you in was for one reason and one reason only, to showcase his grace toward you. But I do hope you see that just for Paul, and as it is for us, it is only because of the grace of God that we have come not just to hear the gospel, but to also share it as well. I wonder then for how many of us, if the grace of God has resulted not just in a belief in Jesus' resurrection, but also in the grace to share this amazing reality with others. I'll be honest with you. I'm not the most amazing evangelist. There's are some brothers here that they can walk up to a random stranger and just expound the glories of the gospel to them without even knowing them. And I feel like I need to warm up and go get my hair cut a few times before I can like actually share. And, and praise God for those who are gifted with evangelism. Please keep doing it. Keep encouraging us with that. But I believe the reality that Paul is wanting to paint for us is that if God has made the grace of Jesus Christ known to you, you also are to make that grace known to others. The grace of God indeed should cause us to believe in the resurrection. That's first and foremost. But the grace of God should also compel us to share it so that others might believe. Again, think about that joyous time when you came to know the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Where you knew that you were a sinner forgiven by God. That he had purchased you from your own death. Think about that time. What a grace it is to you. And now God tells you to go share it. Make it known to the ends of the world. We must be compelled by the same grace that saved us to go share it. Why? Because if Paul could look back on his life and know that God's grace to him was not in vain or without reason because of his efforts to share about Jesus... Brother and sister, you can know this as well. You're stumbling through the gospel. Your your poor efforts to read the Bible with that friend who doesn't know it. Your efforts in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are never in vain. It's never in vain. Your opportunities and instances of reading the Bible with an unbeliever at a coffee shop or sharing with a dearly loved friend or family member in your home about the resurrection, it is never in vain. Why? Because it's grace. It's all by grace that we're saved. None of us can make anybody else saved. But it's by grace that we share, and it's by grace that people will believe. It's never in in vain. It's never in vain because it is by grace you are saved, and it will be by the grace of God that the person that you are sharing with, as excellent or as poor at it as you are, it's only by God's grace that that person will be saved. And friend, remember, the grace of God is with, never without reason. It's never in vain. So as we close, we have seen that the resurrection matters because the gospel matters. And the gospel message of Jesus being resurrected matters because it is essential to being a Christian. The gospel matters because it is visible by what we read in the scriptures and, and by the lives it has changed. And we have seen that the gospel matters because it is worth sharing It is quite literally good news that has made you and I believe. And Lord willing, it is good news that will make others believe as well.
This is why we will share together in all things, especially in this and the Lord's Supper, to declare to those watching that we believe in the realities of what we're getting ready to do. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we believe that he will come again. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that your grace is never in vain. And because it's never in vain, God, we can know that even preaching and all these different things are never in vain for the sake of your glory and name. And so, Father, as we come now to this table, we pray that we would be careful to examine ourselves, to not just examine whether or not we believe, but to examine ourselves in such a way that we would hope and look for your coming again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and ask the brothers that are serving with me this morning to go ahead and come up. We, we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning because we recognize that Christ took the wrath, the judgment of God that we deserved. I mean, we talked about that in our sermon this morning. Christ intended that this Lord's Supper be celebrated by local churches of men and women who have placed their faith in the realities that we have expounded this morning, who have placed their faith in the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ and also his return as well. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a member of South Canyon Baptist Church, we are so glad you're here. But if you are a Christian, we want to invite you to take this Lord's table with us, especially if you're a member in good standing of another evangelical church. We want you to join us in this celebration. Nonetheless, this invitation to come to this table, it comes with a warning. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks, judgment on himself. What this means, friends, is that the realities of what we believe are behind these symbols, the bread and juice, these realities must be believed by you in order to partake of them. So part of what Paul means here is that this supper is for those who recognize those spiritual realities behind the symbols of bread and juice, those who are Christians. If you're not a Christian here with us this morning, and you're a little caught off guard that we're doing this this morning, there's no need to be embarrassed. Just let these elements pass before you and and, and know that nobody's going to cast any sort of judgment on you. We actually hope and pray that the next time we take of this table, you'll get to join in with us whenever we do it again. But with that said, Paul does encourage us to examine ourselves. So let us now take a time of silence to confess our sins before God, and I'll end that time with a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we have indeed sinned against you. We have in many ways declared that we would rather be God rather than you. God, we pray that you would forgive us of that and that you would assure us of the pardon that we receive in Jesus Christ and that we would remember as 
your word states that if anyone confesses sin, Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we are thankful for that. Assure us of that pardon and help us have clean hearts and consciences as we take this supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here in a moment, I'm going to pass out the element of bread to these brothers. And as the bread is being distributed, please silently consider your need for Christ as an individual. And once you've received that bread, go ahead and take it individually. You don't have to wait on all of us to be served. Take it in your own time when you're ready, and then you can receive it. And you can take that as a sign of your individual trust in Christ fulfilling your need.
In the same way, he, being Jesus, also took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We ask as the cup is being distributed that you would hold on to it until everyone has been served. Then we will take it together as a sign of our corporate discipleship to Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, as he institutes the supper, says to his disciples, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, 
Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the really great part, in my opinion. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Friends, we await that day and proclaim it until he comes to us again. Take and drink. Our final song this morning really couldn't be a more fitting one than what we have just celebrated. We are going to now sing, See the Destined Day Arise. Please stand and sing. See the destined day arise, see a willing sacrifice, Jesus to redeem our loss, hangs upon the shameful cross, Jesus who but you could bear, wrath so great and justice fair, Every pang and bitter throw Finishing your life of woe Hallelujah, hallelujah Lamb of God for sinners slain Hallelujah, hallelujah Jesus Christ, we praise your name But Christ had dared to drain Steeped in gall the cup of pain And with tender body bare Thorns and nails and piercing spear Slain for us the water flowed Mingled from your side with blood Sign to all the testing eyes of the finished sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Jesus Christ, we praise your name. Holy Jesus, grant us grace In that sacrifice to place All our trust for life renewed Pardon sin and promised good Grant us grace to sing your praise Round your throne through endless days Ever with the sons of light, blessing, honor, glory, might. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
praise your name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Jesus Christ, we praise your name. Amen, amen. Let me dismiss you with this benediction, this blessing from God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. You are dismissed. Nothing to fear